Welcome back to the OPEX podcast where fitness is explained. I am your host, Robbie Burke, and I'm joined on today's show by Dr. James Hoffman from Renaissance Periodization. This episode is part one of a two-part series where myself and James get into an in-depth conversation around the book that he co-authored with Dr. Mike Isertel, Recovery from Training. Guys, this was an absolutely outstanding episode with James. I know you're going to love it. And as I always say, stay with us. Dr. James Hoffman, it is an absolute pleasure to have you come on the OPEX podcast. First of all, that beard, man, it is, oh. it is majestic. But before we go any further, we've already, we've already been talking for half an hour before I click record here. Let's give us the background uh, sure. for the viewers and for the listeners. And also, um, background, no, just background for now. And then I'm going to ask about your influences and then we're going to get deep into this recovery book. So take it away, my man. All right. Well, thanks for so much for having me on. Always a pleasure. Um, my name is Dr. James Hoffman. I work for Renaissance Periodization. I have a PhD in sport physiology. I think most people know me either from RP Plus or for being uh, with Mike Israel all the time. We're usually a tag team for a lot of the stuff. Um, my general background is I went to school at University of Illinois, got my undergrad in biochemistry, then I got my uh, master's in applied exercise physiology at the same place, then I got my PhD at East Tennessee State, uh, and I actually did my dissertation on sled pushing and rugby guys. So uh, I did rugby coaching there, and then I worked at Temple University for several years. I was the program director for exercise and sports sciences, and now I'm just doing uh, RP stuff full time. So I help write books and templates, and I coach, and we do seminars and all that stuff. So that's me in a nutshell. And your books are absolutely savage. As, as I was saying to you before we got on, Scientific Principles Strength Training, unreal book. So uh, I, I always, I always, well, I used to teach at personal training college, and that was one of the books I recommended, along with Eric Helms's uh, two pyramid books. You know, so uh, I always call Scientific Principles of Strength Training like the layman's textbook, in that like it's not like so super heavy, it's not super scientifically heavy. And, but it's also not so much like of an opinion PDF piece. It's like nicely in the center. I think it's a beautiful book to scientific principles. And obviously the, the two books that I've interviewed both Mike last week and you this week. So I interviewed Mike on the, the how much I should train book and I'm interviewing you on the, the recovery book. So uh, your materials are fantastic there. So hats off. Thanks. I think, I think, I mean, scientific principles was one that we were really proud of and mm -hmm. we still are, but I think the, the volume landmarks book and the recovery book, I think were the ones that we were really like, I don't want to say the most passionate about recently, but really we were just like had a real big fire in our belly to get out there and put out. And um, it's definitely been, well, I think it's been well-received and it's really fun to talk about with people because some of the stuff we just don't know. And that's why there are opinion pieces out there in, in some of those books where we say, Hey, you know, like this is what we think based on what we currently know, but exercise science, sport physiology, I've only been studying them formally, like actually as an actual field of study for like, I don't know, 50, 60 years. It's, Whereas, like, it's, a, baby. it's a baby compared to other wow. sciences. Yeah. Compared yeah, to like wow. physics, physics, like Newton, like that's like what three gone on 300 years. Why not? Seven yeah. Years. Or even just like medicine and biology. Right. It's like, they've been around forever. So sometimes people will say like, how much volume should I increase week to week? If I'm doing this cycle, this cycle. And it's like, we, we don't actually know. We have a, a general idea of like, okay, you should probably be going up there's probably an upper limit as to how much you should be going up, but how much that is, we don't know. So just use your best, best guesstimate. And that's a lot of times what we do at the, for our books, we say like, this is what we think based on experience and what we've done with our clients and ourselves. And here's what we think and try it, try it for yourself. <laughs> Find out. Great stuff. And sorry, I meant to say this to you offline. I was saying, and then I, as usual, I got distracted and went to another point about your books. Like, yeah, I was saying that, you know, I, I love that your books are, 
I love the way you outlay your books because you know you you can take what are potentially fairly complex topics, but the way you guys lay it out, you lay it out in such a digestible, very logical way. Like so, I know with the recovery book and uh, with the volumes book. So like as I was reading through them, like so when I st- I actually read the the volume book first because I interviewed Mike last week, so I read that first. And like you know, I read the first chapter and I was like taking these, taking notes, taking notes. And then I just kind of started reading 44 and I was like, oh, I can see the logical layout now. And I'm just like, this is so easy to follow. And then it was a similar then with the recovery book in terms of like the hierarchies and the way the chapters are laid out. So, you know, it doesn't start that way. I promise you. Uh, usually it's like a big, like just <laughs> clusterfuck of thoughts. Usually we just put it on paper. We'll put a draft out there and then, um, you know, either myself will have kind of the, I will edit Mike stuff and he'll edit mine. And then what we've been doing lately, which has been much better is having other people and like uh, editors get on board. So Dr. Davis, Mike's sister, Sonia, and then actually one of my best friends, uh, Steven Dvorak have actually helped with the editing. And they all say like, this piece needs to go here. This makes no sense. Like you haven't talked about this, you need to move it. And so that's really helped a lot. So I don't, we, we don't take credit for the, the structure and the logic of the book. We only take credit for the thoughts and then everyone else has really helped us improve mm, some of those mm. qualities. So having who, a good who's, staff is important. Who's, Steve, who's Steve, what's Steven's second name? Javorak? Steven Dvorak. He's, he's been not- my like lifelong friend from Illinois and he, uh, he has a, a, a MFA in creative writing. So his writing skills are excellent. And he's also uh, pre-med at the moment. So he's a real, real smart guy and an amazing I, writer. I was so. wondering if he was anything to Ish, uh, to Ishvan Javorak, you know, the guy who came up with the complexes. I was like, he's not. Into that. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, unrelated, unrelated. But, um, but having people like him and, and Dr. Davis, who's sitting behind me actually, and my sister really have helped us like, uh, make it more digestible and user-friendly because some of those things are complex. And it's really funny too that you mentioned like uh, we started writing the recovery book before the volume book. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that came out was like, okay, we've actually written like a hundred pages on the volume landmark stuff at this point. It's already more than half the book. We should probably just make that a separate book. Yeah. <laughs> and so we started with the recovery book, but then we made the volume book that came out first and then we finished the recovery book later. So it was kind of like, like you said, like sometimes these things are so big and vast, you have to break them up into more digestible bites. Yeah, I, I heard I heard Mike say that that that's what happened is that you were writing the recovery book and then this whole like volume uh, area just like metam- metamorphosized into like its own beast and it was just like right this has to be its own separate book. And actually, it was really funny. We were Mike Mike and I were living in my condo in Philadelphia and we were just shooting the shit one day and we had already kind of like fleshed out a few ideas like maximum recoverable volume. And then we started just shooting the shit about like maintenance volumes and stuff. And we basically had this like giant epiphany about uh, periodization for sport. And mm. then we were like writing our notes down, writing our notes down. And then Mike like went to his like lab chambers where he like spent the next several weeks writing. And then all of a sudden we had this just book just after us just kind of shooting the shit together in my couch. You know what I mean? So it was really fun. It was really cool to see it kind of materialized. And now it's even funnier. And this is just funny for me you'll see people using the terms very like as if they're just normal terms online. They'll say like, how do you get to your MEV or how do you do MV or MRV? And that's just, we, we came up with that. You know what I mean? So for me, it has like this big novelty where people use it as if it's the truth. And I appreciate that. And um, it's just fun. You know what I mean? Where it's like, yeah. that, that didn't exist a few years ago. And now people are using it colloquially. It's just really fun. You, fun definitely, you definitely wrote the last chapter in that uh, volume book, didn't you? The one, the yeah, I, uh, I, I had edits throughout and then the last one was more specifically mine. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, it, it, it was to deal with like specific sports. So like, like team sports and 
MMA and uh, I think you think you, did, you also touched on the sport of fitness a little bit, but because because my background's in team sports, when you were describing the team sports, and like it's, I could see like a lot of block periodization methods, you know, so like emphasis and de-emphasis and like emphasis on particular capacities and qualities and retentions of other qualities. Like this is exactly my program. This is a uh, Ishran's book or like a uh, vertical integration by Charlie Francis. Yes, and you know the thing is that like most people who are involved in strength conditioning who aren't just total gym bros. They understand these ideas that are in that book. Like you, you, you read it and you're like, oh, I get that. But yeah. there was never like words and definitions to put to it. And so what we, our goal was like, we need a systematic like nomenclature system where we say like, this is exactly what we're talking about. Because mm-hmm. you'll, you'll say to a division one strength coach like, oh yeah, they need to work on power and but they just need to maintain their muscle mass throughout the the in-season phase right so and then they go oh yeah great but then but what do they do they start doing hypertrophy training instead and you're like no what are you doing that's totally wrong and they're like they need to maintain their muscle mass right and you're like uh so that's like one of the things we wanted to illustrate was like no there's terms there's a way we can define these things in like a systematic way of doing it so that was really fun for me and um we were talking off 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 air a minute ago and we were, one of the things we're trying to do is apply that same concept to something like crossfit and you were talking about uh, skill acquisition mm. and one of the questions that i have been pondering too is like okay how do i apply the same idea to somebody who is doing crossfit and then i was like what is the like maintenance volume needed of something like jump rope like how much jump rope do i have to do to not get worse at jump rope you know it's like no idea no clue yeah. no idea where to even start on that so there's like a lot of fun thought experiments and uh, more questions that can be derived from some uh, of this. It's huge. The one, and we're going to get back to the recovery. Uh, recovery. Sorry, we keep tangenting all over the place here. No, listen, it's me too. I, I'm, I'm, like, I'm, it's, I'm always at it, like going off the hand. We'll get back to the recovery from training book now in just a second, which is our main topic for today. Uh, but Because uh, I definitely, I would love to get you on to cover chapter eight in the, from the how much, I, how much I Should Train book. But one thing I did really appreciate from that chapter was that uh, certain qualities will bleed into the retention of other qualities. So one interesting one, like we all, like we know, like that, uh, like strength will have some sort of retention on hypertrophy, you know. So yeah, like so yes. that, you, you touched on that. But what was really interesting was like tactical training in sports retaining certain physical capacities like aerobic capacities or even like touching a little bit maybe on some uh, a lactic capacities so you were like saying you know a tactical small side of game will have some um ability to retain like uh or like to, to retain aerobic fitness and also maybe prolong a residual of a physical capacity like an aerobic capacity which is very interesting you know yeah, and it's such a like it's a fun thing to think about because you've been involved in team sports. How many coaches do you know who will continue to do like full contact practices? They'll continue to do conditioning and they'll continue to do separate yeah. skill-based sessions. And you're like, you know, actually one of those things probably covers all of them at the same time mm. equally well. So why would you add all this extra stuff when you could probably consolidate and do a really good job at the very least? have them uh, less fatigued all the time from having more sessions and more grind of like, okay, I got to go to practice. I got to get my kit. I got to get my food. I got to do all this stuff. Right. And uh, that's the kind of things that really, I think are really interesting to talk about, especially for complicated sports, like your field sports, your MMAs, your CrossFit. Those are like the most fun ones to talk about. Cause it's like, wow, I could probably cut a lot of stuff out if I'm doing sparring or if I'm doing mm. live play or small sided games, you know, definitely. It's really fun. He said my, one of my favorite words there, consolidate. I love that. Chavez Smith, consolidation of stressors. I love it. Yeah, exactly. Right. You and add something, you have to take something away. And that's the thing. That's like 
why that's one of the reasons why we wrote that book because in the united states and you guys in the, in the uk in general are much better about sports science just period like the average person i would say out by you or even in like the pacific islands like australia new zealand way better than we are in the united states and so in the u.s you'll say you'll have coach fucking dur who will be like oh, all right i've been doing it this way for 20 years dur, dur, dur. and you'll say okay we need to do this and they'll just they just add they just add 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 never taking anything away and then you get athletes who are beat to shit all the time and they wonder why they're having a crappy season or why they're having ankle injuries and knee injuries or this or you know shoulder overuse in baseball all sorts of stuff and so that's the that was one of the, the most passionate points we wanted to make you can't just add you have to balance you have to consolidate you, you can't it's like uh do you watch anime at all are you an anime fan i've heard you mention this and i have no idea what it is Ah, there's a show uh, called Full Metal Alchemist, and that's like kind of the theme uh, of the show. Like, in order to to take, you have to, in order to give, you have to receive, or, or whatever. You know that there's equilibrium, right? Reciprocity. Like yeah. Yeah. So um, that was another point that I was really passionate about too, and I'm glad that you picked up on that. See, that like with like, the but with the redneck coaches, you're not speaking their language. You gotta be like, ah, Durka, 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 Durka. Yeah, we, I lived amongst them for a good three years. So they have a couple, we have a couple dialects. There's derp and lerp. Some people are fluent in, in both. Um, yeah, it's a different, different scene out there. Uh, if you've never been to like the Southeast, it's a little different. No, I don't want to go. I find that down near the Bible Belt, I'm all right. I think I'll yep. just stay here. Yeah, <laughs> stick to the big cities. Stick to the like California or the North. You don't have to go out to like Tennessee. It's all right. It's, it's pretty. It's pretty. It is. I've heard it's pretty. All right. All right, so uh, just for the viewers, because uh, the listeners won't see this because you're listening, uh, I move around a lot when I do interviews. And the reason is because I like to take notes and I'm usually grabbing books and filling around. It's not that I'm not paying attention, just in case people think that I am always on the pen. Because this is like, I get, to, it's because I get overly excited. I've sent it to James, like two of us have ADD probably. Uh, so I just get so excited that I just have my, my train of thought. I need to like write it down on like my hand or the floor or my sock or something. Anyway, before we get into the book here again, one last question Your biggest influences. And then we'll get ready to rock and roll. Ooh, man, that's tough. Like professional influences or both, like just both, life? Both. Yeah, both life and profession. God. Well, uh, I had a couple really great instructors when I was an undergrad at University of Illinois, Chicago. Uh, Thane Muntz being one of them. He's a doctor. Um, Carrie Hamster-Wright and Dr. John Coombe Lilly, um, all of which really like sparked the passion for exercise and sports science in me. Because I was actually a pre-farm biochemistry uh, major. And I was minoring in kinesiology only after my girlfriend at the time had said, why don't you do kinesiology? I was like, that's a thing. I didn't even know that's a thing you could study. I was really, was always passionate about exercise and stuff, but I just never knew you could study it. And those particular instructors at the department of uh, kinesiology really were so great at just getting me fucking enthused and pumped about studying exercise science. And some of the topics I didn't even care about, like so we had a class on athletic training, I don't care about athletic training, no offense to anyone who is, but the way that they conveyed the information, their, their passion mm. really made me want to pay that forward where I was like, yeah. I want to instill this feeling that I'm feeling right now into someone else because if this is the greatest feeling. I've never felt so excited to be involved and learn something. Uh, so to me, that was huge. That was massive. And I switched my, my major over to uh, in, during my master's and my PhD. After that, it was like smooth sailing because, um, I felt like they were such an inspiration to me. I was like, I want to get younger people excited about sport and exercise science the way that I'm excited right now. So that was a huge influence for me. And then, uh, I don't know, I was kind of a early millennial. So, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Metallica come to mind, uh, all sorts of just stupid stuff. Video games, Altered Beast on Sega Genesis. 
Wow. <laughs> really lame. Awesome. Um, all sorts. I'm into all sorts of nerdy shit, man. I love Dungeons and Dragons. I love Star Wars. Love it. You know, love it. Love the I'm a big dork. Yeah. yeah. Fuck it. That's video games, about. comics. You know. No, I, I'm not. I'm not a comic or video video uh, video game guy, but I'm definitely a nerd. But uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I always would love to meet the people who came up with that. Like they must have been off their face. You're just like, high as fuck, yeah. right? Like, what were you thinking? We're gonna have. We're gonna have turtles. What? Yeah. <laughs> we're gonna have turtles, they're right? Ninjas, and they fight. And there's and a. And their sense is going to... He's a rat. He's not even a moose. <laughs> yeah, it's rat. Yeah, no, some of that stuff is just totally absurd and ridiculous. Like, how do you come up? Their enemy's a brain in the go in the moose. Yeah, yeah. Or, like, have you ever, have you ever rewatched, like, He-Man, Masters of the Universe? <laughs> oh, like, my God. At the, when you're a kid, you don't think about it, but when you're an adult, you're like, what the fuck is this? Ah. This is ridiculous. Anyway, that's not how I felt when I read Recovery from Train. I'm like, this book okay. is very, very good and, and logical. So... Well, let's get into why did you feel the need to write this book and then we're going to get into discussing uh, what is fatigue what is recovery the difference between recovery adaptations and then i have a boatload of other questions and we have one hour and sometimes like you're like you know an hour but myself and pat davis a friend of mine like we talk for hours and hours and like when we're on, when we're on a time constraint we it's like skill acquisition constraint that approach we're like oh we're constrained by time here pat we got to get creative so let's yeah, because otherwise you can just like fucking go on. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. We can start talking about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and exactly. rats and days. <laughs> I know. I appreciate the time limit because I do the same thing. I, you got to stay on track. We have a time limit for our weekly webinars just for that reason. So we say like, no, got to get it done. Because um, I would keep, I'd keep going. Do you know what I mean? All right, let's go. Uh, recovery from training. Um, how to manage fatigue to maximize performance. And I'll be putting all the links and show notes to all these resources. So why the need to write this book? You know, we wrote this book for very similar reasons as to why we wrote Scientific Principles of Training, where we would get questions constantly from people that are like, how much time should I spend in the ice bath? You know, should I be doing acupuncture for recovery? How much cardio should I be doing for recovery? What about Ramwad? And it just became this kind of like barrage. And what was hard to illustrate to people was like a lot of the things they were asking about have such tiny, tiny little effect sizes. And then you'd say like, don't worry about Ramwad. Like, how is your sleep? Are you eating enough food? Are you doing a good job, like, with your lifestyle? And they're like, fuck no. I drink all day. I drink coffee when I'm not drinking alcohol. My job is killing me slowly. You know, I sleep like three hours a night and I basically do cocaine or heroin every moment that I can just to stay alive. And you're like, well, no kidding. Your, your, your recovery is shit, right? Like, because your lifestyle sucks, bro. It's not because you're not in the cryo chamber or you're not taking more, you know, test or, or trend or whatever. Like, that's fine too, but that's not the issue. You, you, you're missing fundamental concepts. So very much like scientific principles, what we wanted to illustrate was like, hey, you know what? There are some fundamental things in our context of recovery, just like there are fundamental training principles, right? And so people were getting just so caught up in the minutia where they're like, oh, they're perseverating over like, should I wear this compression sleeve? Should I do this or that? And it's like, you're wasting your time. That's the real problem, right? Where you have only so much time and effort, only so many things that you can do throughout the day. It's like MRV, right? Like how much stuff are you going to be juggling around here? Well, there's a, there's diminishing returns at some point. So what we wanted to say was like, look, there are some really powerful things you can do. There are some other really good things that are worth mentioning. And then there are some other things that are kind of like the icing on the cake. They're worth your time. But at the end of the day, they're not that important. So here's what we need to focus on is like a systematic approach to recovery. And 
we kind of came at it at that mindset and I did some research and really nobody else had done anything quite in, I'm trying to be humble here, right? But I don't think anyone else has done anything quite as systematically in terms of recovery where there's a really great book by um, Hosworth and Mujica that is uh, like a kind of a big review article, basically textbook of all these different recovery modalities. There's a couple other uh, really good recovery books, but none of them come at you from the perspective of like, which of these are the most important? How do I integrate these into my training program into the most efficacious way? Most of them are just like, here's this, you know, literature, here's this, literature, here's this, literature, never really telling you like, what's the take home? How powerful is it? How, how do I integrate it into my life? You know, a lot of it's just kind of like consolidating papers where they're like, Oh, we use this temperature, this application time, you know, measured these variables. Yeah, yeah. And that's fine too. That's important. Um, but we wanted one where people can see like, okay, here's the things that you can look at. Here's what they do. Here's how they work. Here's how you integrate them into your existing plan. That was kind of the most important thing for me was like, let's not just list things that you can do. Let's list them in terms of their rank order importance and tell people how to actually integrate them into their life. So I think that was the big driving force behind Recovery Book. Right. Well, I don't know if you want to show it now. Do you want to show the hierarchy now just to start off? Sure. And then we can, yeah, we can get into what is fatigue. By the yeah. way, I see you're wearing that Irish rugby top. I love it. I was like, okay, I, got, I was like, should I go for the, the actual team jersey top or the tank top? And I was like, he said the tank top. So let's go with that. Okay. You're, you're open my screen here. I can see it loud and clear. Great. So yeah, here's, here's kind of the hierarchy that we came up with. And um, we were already kind of talked about this, but like you can see on the bottom there is training within your MRV. And this was something like we had written over a hundred pages on when we were writing the recovery book. And we're like, you know what, this is just its own thing at this point. We have so much to say. And we still, to this day, you know, what's really funny. So I'm tangenting already, right? Stay on track, right? Jesus. No, no, you're good, bud. You're good. Listen, um, we can always do part two, three, four, five. So you, yeah, for you, sure. rant, you rant away. Um, one of the, the reasons, this is a sidebar secret reason. Well, it's not really secret because I'm, I'm blurting it out. But one of the other reasons why we write these books is so that we don't have to keep answering the same questions all the time, which yeah. is kind of a selfish, snotty answer. And I apologize for that. But we do get a lot of the same questions. So now well, sometimes when we write the books, we're like, okay, well, let's write this book. And then when people ask us the same questions over and over again, we say, okay, check out this book. This has all the answers, right? And um, we still, to this day, so we released the Volume Landmarks book and we thought we covered it really, really well. But there's just inevitably so many more questions that arise and many, many good questions. And they're not stupid questions by any means. We still get bombarded with people with questions on the volume landmarks all the time. And our goal partially was to be like, well, here's this book, read the book mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that you're good. Right. And now we get people who are like, well, I read the book, but I had this really, really advanced question. And we're like, shit. Right now we have to think about it even more. And it's a good problem. Good problem to have. Yeah. 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 Um, but anyway, sorry, it was just sidebar. So like, the volume landmarks book came out and we were like, great. Now we can kind of consolidate this because now we have a ton of information on that, which is great. So we can see like the base of the pyramid is training within basically your volume landmarks. And the reason why that is so important is kind of the same reason I talked about with coach Derp before, where if you are just adding things and this is the wrong mindset to be in and we all kind of fall into it. It's just a natural thing where we say like, okay, what do I need to add? I need to add, I need, I need to do more things in my training program. I need to keep adding things, right? Well, you can't just keep adding things because time, training, even energy are finite resources. Mm -hmm. So you only have so much that you can put out there. And if you start to exceed those limitations, there is nothing you can do to bring down that fatigue in any substantial amount, right? So the training within your volume landmarks really was kind of, it's not even a, 
I, I think of it more of as a prerequisite sort of item where it's like, this isn't even really in the topic of recovery specifically. This is just saying you need a minimum amount of training that you need to do in order to be making progress. Because if you are training below the minimum values, then recovery is not a limiting factor to you getting better. You just need to train more, right? That's the only issue. If you are exceeding your maximum boundaries, there's nothing fun that you can do. There's no compression sleeve. There's no cocaine or heroin amount you can take, at least in the long term. There's no amount of food you can eat um, to get around that, right? So you have, to, you have to know your kind of thresholds for training, which can be variable from different fitness characteristics or phases of training or depending on what your diet is doing. That's the foundation. So you have to know what are my upper and lower bounds of training which can be fluid and can be difficult. And so this is probably the most important step where we say you cannot, this is the first choke point. You cannot get past this, the most important thing. After that, we moved into like our passive strategies, which are some of my favorite ones to talk about. And I know you've checked out the book and like it's the passive strategies are kind of a reoccurring theme throughout the book. And I think yeah. it's one that um, we pay lip service to, but people don't do very often, right? Where we say like, you need to sleep, you need to relax, you need to stress manage. And everyone goes, yeah, 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 yeah. But well, well, how much compression should I be doing? How much time in the ice bath? And you're like, no, no, no. How much sleep are you getting, asshole? And they're like, okay, fine, three hours a night. And you're like, that's not good enough, right? Or they're chronically stressed out all the time. Or we have a lot of people and um, CrossFit, I'm not trying to call, call it CrossFit anyway, but a lot of CrossFit people are guilty of not taking any days off where they'll just train seven days a week, right? Is that the best way to go about things? Probably not. Definitely, definitely not. Definitely not. OPEX is crossed at least. They, they, yeah. they, they <laughs> no, very logical programs. I can tell you that. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's more of a thing here in the U S cause you know, like we have that like stupid iron brotherhood, like don't be a wuss. Like you need to train hard, train every day till you shit your pants and bleed out your nose and your eyes puffy. It's just ridiculous. Right. It's, this is like machismo ego based training instead of logic and uh, thought based training. So forget that. But anyways, uh, so yeah, we said, okay, passive recovery in terms of effect size, by far the next most important thing. And this is kind of a more direct part of recovery where you say like, okay, sleep has direct effects, relaxation, stress management have direct effects and they're powerful, right? So that's kind of a second choke point where we say training within the, la the landmarks, first choke point. If you don't fix that, you're screwed, right? The next one going to their passive recovery, specifically sleep, the next choke point, right? If you don't do that, None of the rest of this discussion matters. So it's kind of interesting, right? Even within this pyramid, you have two distinct choke points where nothing else matters, right? Training within the landmarks and, and passive recovery, more specifically sleep. If you don't manage those things right off the bat, it doesn't matter how much you eat. It doesn't matter how much deloading and active rest you do. You're fucked. You need to take care of those things first. And I think that's like a really interesting perspective. And then after that, you say, okay, I'm doing a good job of my sleep. But now I actually have to make sure I'm actually uh, doing a good job during the daytime, too. I have to make sure my lifestyle is now accommodating the rigors of my training, which is very, very tough. And so what you'll see a lot of times is people will do a really good job with their training. And then they'll try and do like physical relaxation throughout the day. They'll like sit on the couch or try and chill out. But what do they do? They have work or school. And then they're frantically like, fuck, 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 trying to type and do emails and be crazy all the time. They never get that psychological relaxation either. So they're still chronically like stressing themselves out all the time. And they're always in that heightened stress state and never able to get the most out of their recovery. And then we moved into other things like nutrition and we said, okay, you know, if we're looking at nutrition and active recovery, which one's more important? And we're like, ah, we really can't say, and there's not enough 
numbers out there to, to really put a, a concrete, this one's better than this one kind of attitude. So we said they're probably equally weighted. There are some distinct bullet points worth mentioning in both of these. And the nutrition one was kind of similar to what we talk about in a lot of our other stuff with a little few changes about carbohydrates and uh, nutrient timing being a little bit more important, but largely the same, same old song and dance, what we talk about most of the time. Active recovery is a really fun one where we say, okay, what's the cool part about active recovery? In my opinion, the coolest part is that fatigue drops off faster than fitness decays more often than not. Mm -hmm. So you can still do stuff, but bring the training volume down, drop that fatigue without deconditioning so that you can, uh, you can potentiate either microcycles, mesocycles, or macrocycles where you say like, I'm training hard day to day, week to week, month to month, but I want to keep training hard, but I don't want to stop training at all. Boom. Now we have some really cool ways to do that. And then at the top, right, we've got the therapeutic and supplemental. And this is probably where everyone spends the most time. Yeah. And I think the one I got a lot of shit for, uh, <laughs> I don't, this is kind of funny, um, massage, man. Massage was one that people are really passionate about. Understandably so. Why? Because massage makes you feel good. It makes everyone feel good. Who doesn't like to have a nice massage, right? And then we actually had a bunch of people. This is, this is so bad. I'm just going to go for it. I don't care. We had a bunch of people who were like raving about the recovery book who were like, they talk about how great massage is and like how we're so glad to be like masseuses and being acknowledged in the field. And I was like, it actually kind of like downplays the importance of massage. I don't know if you read it or not, but uh, I appreciate that, that a good feedback. Um, but uh, I don't think you actually read what it said. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you clearly so, did not read the book. Yeah, and it was like, and it, again, like, and we tried not to, to shit on massage because there's definitely a time and place and it yeah. definitely has a, a potential benefit. It's just not what people thought it was. And so we had a lot of like, you know, people just feel passionately about that. That's when they, uh, they start emotion splaining. That's when they, they, you know, instead of like mansplaining where you just use your male chauvinistic uh, abilities to talk down to people, they start emotion splaining where it's like, I feel strongly about something and you need to acknowledge my emotions about the topic. I've got a lot of that kind of stuff. So, but I think I, th I still stand by what we said and I think it's fair and valid. And uh, until new stuff comes out that says otherwise, that's what we're going with. And then the supplemental stuff is just, uh, as the name implies, supplemental, right? Everyone wants to know how much time should I do cryo? How much compression? How much contrast? And it's like, well, you know, probably doesn't matter a whole lot. And the times that you use it are very contextually limited where it's like, yeah, for athletes who are competing actively, um, those probably are really good strategies at certain times. But for the rest of the year, like in their general preparatory periods and even in their specific preparatory periods, you probably might not use them at all. Mm. So we put them at the top of the list and we say their effect sizes are limited. They're not that powerful. And their contextual use and applicability are limited. They're just not that useful throughout the year compared to other things like sleep, uh, eating enough calories, deloads, stuff like that. So that's kind of the, the pyramid in a nutshell. And I know we can talk about any, any of these more specifically, but that's kind of the logic and reasoning. We said there was a balance of effect size um, and applicability. And we wanted to say the ones that have the biggest effect sizes and are most applicable are at the bottom. And then as we kind of decrease in those two things, they move up higher and higher. So with the training within your MRV, like that's pretty much covered in the, the how much I should train book. So we'll, we'll leave that for now because I've covered the first six chapters with that with Mike last week. We still have to finish off chapter seven, eight. And to be honest, I probably will get you on to discuss chapter eight. Which yeah, I'd love to. That's great. Yeah, more applicable to team sports. Uh, just before I go any further, I, I know there is going to be people watching this and listening to this and they're going to be like, you know, they're like, where are they getting like this hierarchy, like passive and nutrition? Like show me the science and the presentations. It's like, listen, 
the guys are trying to put forward a model that no one has, has conceptualized or put out there before. They're, they're putting stuff out there like to, to be critiqued as well, because that's how they learn yeah. as well. That's how we'll all learn. But it's just so you get those people who are like, yeah, where are they getting show me? And it's just like, well, then where's, where's your hierarchy? Where's your solution? Well, what, what are you adding to this discussion? You just want to moan to moan. That, and that's, that's perfectly fine. And if, if, you know, if people don't agree, I, I'm, I'm more than willing to entertain the discussion. And we don't, even, we don't even think that this is perfect. This is just based on the current time. This is based on the knowledge that we have at the moment. Um, this is what we think is probably the most important. And uh, I, would, I would, and the, you know, here's a good example. Um, I personally think that the, uh, the blue blocking sunglasses, like the, white, the wavelength management stuff, is looking pretty positive yeah and it, it might actually be worth your effort i don't know I, if it's i'm actually I, i'm surprised that you that you didn't weren't so much a believer in that when i heard you on steve hall's podcast because like uh, i've i've done a lot of research into circadian biology since 2011 yeah. and like blue light is like like that's that's pretty there is a lot of like it's biology like i mean it's pretty solid science well and here's my point is that um when we were writing the book there just wasn't enough at the time where we were comfortable going there. And then I hadn't looked at it in a while and I was on Steve Hall and I actually met up with one of our colleagues, Tiago, and it came up in a discussion and I was like, and I said the same thing. I was like, you know, last time I looked, it was, it looked promising, but it just wasn't enough where I felt confident. And they were like, you should look again because it's, it's seemingly to be very positive. And so that's another example where it's like science is a fluid thing, right? What, is true or what is thought today is, is going to be subject to change every year. So that's an example. Like, why didn't you put that in the recovery book? Well, cause at the time it just didn't seem to be a good investment in what we're, what we're trying to portray out to people. And if I was to rewrite the book again, I would say I, that might make the list this time around. Yeah. You know what I mean? So if for people who, uh, who want to criticize, that's totally awesome. Um, I would only say like, this is just a system that we, think is the most efficacious mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and if you if you want to break this down into uh into different categories i think ultimately you will come to the same general conclusions where you might want to break down nutrition right you might say like nutrition is too broad of a category we got to look at like something else i don't know what that would be but whatever or you want to say like active recovery or passive recovery too broad i want to break it down but ultimately when you start investigating these things on the individual level you will probably come to the same relative conclusions where you say like, oh, okay, this is, uh, this has a, you know, kind of an efficacy of this much and applicability of this much. And we have largely found the same thing. The reason why I think this model works is because it, it's easy to put into a kind of a systematic process where you can break it down into really, really complex things and have kind of like a, like a spidery flow chart kind of, process if you want to do it that way mm. but then it gets really really complicated and you say like okay how do i start incorporating all these things into like a logical systematic way and it gets really difficult this way i think at least is a good starting place for a lot of people where you say like, i have no idea how to start how do i incorporate recovery strategies well here's a pretty good roadmap of what that should generally look like and then you can always individualize to your own personal needs if you think like if you for example robbie you're like i feel like i get so much out of massage, right? How dare you put that up at the top? You know what? Do more massage. You know, that might actually be great for you. You might feel, get a huge relief from that and it might be worth your time. All we're saying is this is a good place to start and then individualize from that point on. Even, I'll tell you what I do, just pull up the, the full screen again because I can imagine my editing team are like, get him on the full screen. Oh, sorry. He just, yeah, there you go. Rambling. 
Rambling but, uh, no, no, you're listen, you're great because we'll probably show the other hierarchies as, as we go along. But uh, like even say because you mentioned the blue light blockers, you have sleep there. So like I mean, people who who kind of have an idea of sleep hygiene are probably already people who do that. Like say personally myself, what I do is I always put them on uh, when the sun is setting. So it depends on time of year. It'll vary then. And then I just make sure that morning. that might be for a real substantial part of the day too. That might be, you know, like six hours before you go to bed. Yeah. Yeah. It is like, basically the strategy is, is when it's dark, just decrease your exposure to artificial light causes the blue light exposure. So like in the winter times, like say 5 PM, you just put on the glass and then you just like put on a hoodie to cover yours. Cause your skin picks up light. You've got cryptochromes that pick mm -hmm. up in the sense. So you have peripheral clocks in your body as well, as well as your central clock. So your central clock is your superchiasmic nucleus, which is, uh, through your eye and then that tells your penile gland relates to your penile gland what time of day it is and blue light then blocks the secretion of melatonin for your penile gland and you want melatonin to be high at night not low because that makes you sleepy whereas you want cortisol higher in the morning hours rather and then low at night but the blue light can stimulate cortisol and downregulate melatonin so you're getting a you're getting a, a reverse in that axis there which you don't want so that's kind of yeah. like that's the basic one-on-one of, of why that is but uh, I've, been, uh, I've been messing around with it. So like I was, Steve and Tiago were giving me a bunch of shit. And so I was like, all right, fine. So I went on Amazon and I got them and I've been using the nightlight on my computers and screens and stuff. And it's too, I, I, it's too early for me to say yes or no, but uh, and I'll from, give you, from the practical. I'll give you some, I'll give you some I, resources to look into as well. Anna. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. I'd love to see. So I'm trying it. I'm, I'm experimenting at home. And uh, uh, like I said, it's too early for my experimentation to, to, yeah. to say anything, but um, hopefully it turns out positive. And All like right. I said, it's a, it seems to be very positive in the literature. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, fatigue. What is fatigue? You know, it depends on who you ask. So there's no universal definition of fatigue. This is one of the problems that we also run into. And so one of the things that we like to tell people is that uh, if you open a stone, stone and sands and look at the definition of fatigue they use, it's different than the one they use in Bampa. It's different than the one they mm. use in you know, any other book that you want to look at. Um, so ultimately, when we're talking about fatigue, we're talking about an impairment of performance, whether that be maximal performance or submaximal performance. And a lot of fatigue definitions don't differentiate those things. Um, we can also look at fatigue on different timescales where we say fatigue is not only acute, meaning like if I go and do five by 10 squats right now, I won't be able to run very fast immediately afterwards, but there's also a chronic effect of fatigue where that fatigue that I generated from that five by 10 squats doesn't just kind of go away. It does take time to ameliorate, right? That might be several days. It might only be half a day. Depends on what you did, right? So what we have found is that, yeah, fatigue uh, is acute, right? You go and do something, and everyone knows this, right? If you go and sprint 200 meters, you know what acute fatigue is, right? You're just going to feel it right then and there. But what we also wanted to kind of reintroduce, and this is this was actually from Stone, Stone, and Sands, um, is that idea of accumulated fatigue, where you say like, okay, what you did yesterday is still with you today. And you're going to go and do training today, and that's going to start accumulating fatigue from what you did yesterday. Now you have two fatigue sources that are starting to summate over time. Mm. And unless you actually take steps to ameliorate those things, they're not just going to go away magically. So if you just keep training, right, keep adding stuff, you're going to keep adding fatigue at the same time. One of the things that we also know about fatigue is it has this nasty effect of blunting some of our fitness responses through downregulation of anabolism, but it can also mask the ability to express certain fitness characteristics, mm -hmm. strength and power come to mind, even things like technique. So one of the things that we'll see a lot is people will try and do like a power speed style training phase, 
but they're doing so much other shit that there's no possible way that they can even express power and speed in their training to get an overload from it, right? This is the, the funniest part. So it's like, now you're having this double violation where you're, you're already doing a bad job on your fatigue management, but your fatigue management has been so bad that now you cannot overload the things that you're trying to train for. So now when you go and train, you're just generating more fatigue and not generating any fitness. So that's like, it's just a junk volume shit sandwich, right? It's just terrible. So one of that's, that's one of the reasons why we, we I'm sorry, I'm just like going crazy. It's one of the reasons why we brought up this whole volume landmarks book is people don't understand that where they, we said fatigue is important, not only because of the way you feel right now, but it also inhibits your ability to train certain things like like if you're a weightlifter, if your technique is shitty and your power and speed are shitty, how are you supposed to get better at doing snatches, yeah. clean and jerks, all those things? You can't. Why? Because you can't overload them because the fatigue is masking your ability to express fitness. So it has this nasty effect where it can blunt some of our fitness uh, adaptations through just down regulation and it can prevent us from overloading altogether. So we have this like really, really nasty one-two punch of fatigue. And there's a lot of ways we can address fatigue some of which are more powerful than others, but ultimately we need to figure out a way to do this. And the problem that we run into is um, if you talk to somebody like Dr. Stone, for example, we talked about him earlier. Dr. Stone is on the hyper conservative side of things where basically he says like, get strong, get, you know, do your best to get strong and that will make you more powerful and a better athlete. And that is, I couldn't agree more for the most part. But he also, if you look at his programming, tends to be very conservative where it's like the athlete will do just kind of like two by three, three by three for a very long time. What's the problem with that? Well, you might not actually be doing enough stuff, either the volume or intensities to actually overload the fitness characteristics that you want, especially if you're dealing with like a slow twitch female, right? They might need to do 10 sets of anything to get anything out of it, right? So they tend to be on the hyper conservative side where they say like, get stronger, but fatigue is bad. Avoid fatigue. You don't want them to be fatigued because then they can't express fitness, which is true. However, there's this balance we have to strike there. And then on the other side, you have fucking Coach Derp, who's going to make their athletes run suicides, you know, or stairs all day before they go to the weight room. And then they go in the weight room, they're sweating bullets and throwing up and crap in their pants. And they can't do anything because they have so much fatigue. Now they're just getting nothing out of everything, right? Overly um, uh, aggressive, right? Where you say like, you're not doing anything. You're not doing any fatigue management. You're just overloading, overloading, overloading all the time. And they're not getting better. They're just going to get injuries and overreaching and possibly overtraining mm -hmm. syndrome. So there's probably a middle ground, right? Where we say, you need to train hard. You need to get stronger, faster, powerful, bigger, all those things, just like Dr. Stone would say, right? You need to overload, but you also need to fatigue manage, right? And so what we find is those things are kind of a fluid process where we're not trying to avoid fatigue. We're just trying to manage it. In order to manage fatigue, you have to generate fatigue. That's the big, that's the caveat, right? You can't yeah. just like, if there, if there was a way around that, you could just do that all the time and you would just continue getting bigger and stronger and faster and never have to worry about fatigue, right? Nobody's figured a way to do that yet. There is no way as far as I'm concerned. So that's the take home message with fatigue, right? Where we say performance can be impaired acutely and chronically. And we need to look at strategies in the short, moderate and long term to address the different types of fatigue that can accumulate, whether they're psychological, emotional, physical stressors, all sorts of stuff. So Again, I'm just flicking through notes there just in case people are wondering, but uh, you have a lovely graph there on page 18 where you show um, the time course of the detrimental fatigue effects on different qualities. So like technique, speed, um, known technique, refinement, technique, expression, peak power, strength, body composition changes. Like the, I'm actually fascinated with fatigue. Like one area I'm fascinated with, and a lot of my friends know this, is uh, training residuals. Like I find residuals just so fascinating because they're so individual. 
Um, and there's just so many factors that can impact on, on individuals, both chronic and transient, you know? So uh, there's just so much to take into consideration there. I mean, the difference in, like we notice, bigger, faster, stronger individuals generate more fatigue. Therefore, they're going to have to do more extreme things from a recovery standpoint. But at the same time, too, like it's easier for them to retain because they've built up such a capacity. Uh, they've built up such a, um, a, um, a capacity reserve of their qualities that the decay rates will be a lot slower than someone who's more beginner, obviously, and then even intermediate. And it's just you got to take all that stuff into consideration when you start talking about yeah. decay rates and training residuals. And um, and even just training age is a huge S- confounder, yeah, right? S- like yeah, SRA curves, training age, like by the biological age. Like the Mike touches Mike and you touching that big time on the how much I should train book. That's that's the chapter I really want to talk about in our next interview. Was like how age. It was just like and then and then like MEV and MV can overtake MRE. I'm like, what's going on? This is crazy. Yeah. There's a couple of times in the when we were writing the book where even I was like having one of those crisis moments where I was like, wait, what are we even talking about anymore? I'm like, I lost myself and we had to like go back and like, okay, rethink it, rethink it. We're good. Cool. Right, we're good. Yeah, we'll, stay, we'll stay on track here because I want to fit a few more things in. But also on page 30 in the book, a lovely graph again of the indicators of fatigue and you break it into three. So you have leading, concurrent and lagging. So maybe just oh, yeah, touch, yeah. touch on those if you want. So yeah, there's a lot of different things that you can look at to judge the state of fatigue. So part of having, uh, you know, looking at this discussion on fatigue is having a good uh, fatigue management and but also an athletic uh, monitoring program. So you have to be able to say both qualitatively and quantitatively, is my athlete in an acceptable training state at the current time? And there's a number of things we can look at, right? So the leading indicators are things that are kind of uh, predictive, where we say, like, if I start getting kind of gnarly scores on any of these things, something is probably coming up, right, where I should be aware, like, if I start to see um, technical coordination, like their ability to express their technique and their training and their sport movements is starting to kind of get a little wonky, right? That means they're probably uh, they're probably going to either be overreached very soon or, or might even be teetering on that right now and are kind of moving into that overreaching phase. Or you can look at things like recent nutrition where they had a really off day, maybe the day before a training session where they didn't eat, they were like way under eight carbohydrates. And you say like, okay, well, if you're, con- if you're under eating carbohydrates, I'm pretty sure you're going to start to have a shit next couple of days, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so these are things that are kind of predictive or like recent physical task is a good one. This is one that people just space out on, right? Maybe you have a really good training program set up. You're good on your nutrition. Everything's good. And then your uncle calls you and he's like, Hey, I need you to come over here and help me landscape my yard tomorrow. And you go over there and you help them like shovel mulch and put stones down and plant a bush or something. And they forget that they did that. And then you go to the gym the next day and you're like, man, I can't put up any numbers that I'm supposed to be putting up. What's the deal? Well, it's because yesterday what you did was all this hard physical labor. There's no way you have fatigue from that, that you're going to be able to, to do your normal training. Right? So those are things that are kind of preemptive where we say like, if you start getting uh, bad scores or kind of bad markers on any of these things, fatigue is probably accumulating to a negative effect and we would expect to see overreaching start to occur very soon. Whereas the concurrent ones uh, are ones where if we get a bad score on this, we can say that you are probably overreached right now, right? Not going to be overreached. We're saying you are probably overreached right now. Mm. So competition performance and just relative performance, competition performance are the easy ones, right? Where you say like, okay, I did really shitty today, whether it was in the gym or on the court or on the field, whatever, like, man, I just, you know, I looked at my miles, number or number of kilometers ran per soccer match or per rugby match or something, or I look at like 
how much did I lift at my meet or how much did I lift in the gym? And you say, man, my numbers are shit today. Well, that's a bad indicator that fatigue might be interfering with the training process, right? You can look at other things like velocity is uh, another really good one. Velocity and uh, speed in general, very, very sensitive to fatigue. So if you are able to uh, actually measure whether you're using a potentiometer or uh, what's that thing called? Uh, a linear, linear, uh, linear transducer. Yeah. Yeah. There's like, like a, a, there's like a brand like, name like a gy- that gy- like gym aware. Yeah. 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 You can use like a, a, any of those, a potentiometer, or they even have the little like Bluetooth ones you can strap uh, on. You can jump, say like, oh. uh, what you call it? The uh, jump uh, or push bands, push bands. But yeah, I actually had one in our temple lab. It was pretty cool. Um, if you can measure that and you say like, I know how fast my athlete is supposed to be moving given their effort. Uh, and they're actually well below that today. I can say pretty definitively like, yeah, that's, that's not good. You're, you're too fatigued. You're not able to express the velocity we need for this training session. Right. Okay. That's a pretty good indicator. And then the lagging ones are, <laughs> they're worth mentioning, but the problem with the lagging ones is that it's too late, right? Mm. You are beyond the point of fatigue management in the sense of like, you can get back on track within like a day or so. Now you're going to have to do a little bit more serious fatigue management, maybe something like a deload, a low volume training phase, an active rest phase, something along those lines, because you're already in the red. That's why we call it red in the book too, right? You're already too far gone. So heart rate variables are one that we get all the time. Or somebody would be like, what do you think about um, your heart rate variability, you know, resting heart rate, stuff like that. Like, are they good efficacious measurements? Yes. What's the downside? Well, the downside is by the time that you measure something is wrong, it's too late. You, need a, you, need a, you are already beyond the point of trying to fatigue manage in the acute sense. Now you have to look at a more chronic strategy. So other things like classic signs of overreaching, like your desire to train. It goes in the tank. You start getting crazy mood disturbances. You're not hungry anymore. You get nauseous at the thought of eating. You're not sleeping very well. Or if you get sick, these are classic overreaching signs, right? That means you're overreaching, right? It doesn't mean that you need to take a light day. It means you're too far gone, buddy. That means you need to do something a little bit more serious, again, like a deload or an active rest Mm. to get back on track. So that's one of those things where people will say like, um, oh, okay, like autoregulation. Yeah, autoregulation is great. But we need to have some definitive measures where we can say, how can I justify taking an auto-regulated light session or an auto-regulated deload outside of just qual- uh, qualitatively, right? I need a quantitative something. I need some evidence to show, like in my monitoring program, my athlete is not in an acceptable training state based on this information. Hmm. So those are all really good indicators that you can use. Um, and again, there's a time course where we say like, okay, some of these are preemptive. Some of these are happening right now. And then some of these are like, okay, it's too late. We need to do some more serious stuff. So I think those are not all of them need to be included into a uh, athlete monitoring program, but certainly components of all of them. Yeah. Brilliant. In, yeah. Some, in some way, you know, you can pull up the screen there again. And then the next question for you is recovery. So we've, we talked about fatigue. What is recovery? So recovery is a great one because again, there's not like a universal definition that we use for recovery. It depends on what you look at. So if you look at old biological and medical models, they look at recovery as basically an organism encountering a stressor, whether that's like heat or, you know, dehydration or something weird. And recovery is basically the time until they get back to normal, right? Mm. Which is largely true for exercise as well. But we have that kind of missing factor where it's like, okay, well, I didn't just go do all those deadlifts and squats and puke my guts out so that I could be just as good as I was yesterday or this morning. I want to be better. Right. So recovery only implies 
a return to kind of initial resting or baseline state. And that is largely true for exercise as well. So when we're talking about recovery, we're looking at kind of the time scale or the things that affect the time scale in which you go from your baseline, you encounter a stressor and we see acute performance uh, decreases. What is the time scale from that performance decrease to getting you back to normal, right? Whether that's jump height or sprinting or efforts during a rugby match, whatever. Mm -hmm. Any number of things we can look at. That's recovery, right? Versus adaptation is our ability to exceed the baseline where we have presented an overload stimulus to something, whether it's cardiovascular abilities, speed, power strength, muscle mass, whatever. We've presented an overload. Now that overload has manifested into new performance abilities above what we used to do. So the interesting thing with recovery is like recovery only implies getting back to where you were, right? So I was here, I got back to there, right? Adaptation is I want to get up here. I want to be better than where I was before. Well, how do I promote adaptation? Well, I can't promote adaptation without recovery but I can have recovery without adaptation, right? And that happens a lot when people are training. It sounds weird, I know, like how can you have recovery and adaptation? Well, it happens a lot when people are training right at their, what we call maximum recoverable volume, right at their MRV, where they didn't leave enough, a little bit of effort uh, gas in the tank to allow for some of those adaptive potentials to come out. They're just training right at the verge of overreaching, possibly even overreaching at all times and never coming back down. So they're recovering, and they're not getting better. And this is something that people have described as, you know, often as plateauing or staleness acutely, not chronic, but acute plateauing or staleness. It's usually because they're training at their MRV all the time and not leaving just a little bit of gas in the tank for adaptation. Those adaptations are, they do cost energy, right? You do have to leave a little bit of energy in the tank in order to mm-hmm. get better. Even just gaining muscle mass, it costs energy, right? It takes the calories out of your diet to put that muscle back on, even repair the damaged muscles. So, it's an interesting distinction, and a lot of people don't make that, especially because a lot of the recovery literature that people look at is based in physical therapy and athletic training, not specifically for exercise and performance enhancement. So they'll say, oh, okay, let's look at all the strategies that enhance recovery, and they'll go, okay, let's look at post-ACL you know, ACL rupture or you know, all these like physical therapy type things. And yes, a lot of that carries over and is true, but there are distinct diverging points when we talk about exercise and performance enhancement. Great stuff. So the next thing I wanted to touch into there was getting into those passive um, passive modalities. We, we know sleep is, is a huge one. It's an absolute huge one. And I, as I said earlier, I've, I've heavily researched sleep and circadian rhythm. So actually, I am a sleep maniac. Like, I mean, a maniac. That's good. Like That's I, 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 am, I am that person who goes to bed like at like 9.30, blue blockers. Like, my sleep is actually incredible. Like, my sleep hygiene is unreal. Like, every night against bed, I'm like, right. I'll, I'll definitely, I'll definitely get 10 minutes of reading. That's just like nothing bad. Yeah. And that's, Dude, I wake up. I, I'm largely the same. Like I'll, uh, I'll try to read, but as soon as I lay down in the bed, just like yeah. gone, I'll get like two pages and I'll struggle. I'm like, I gotta get to the end of this chapter. Nope. Don't make it. Well, I want to ask you just briefly, and then we can get into nutrition. Cause I, I, um, even though I, I heard about this before that excessive muscle damage and the need for, um, extra carbohydrates due to a, a decrease in, in glucose uptake, we'll, we'll touch on that in a second. What I, what one phrase in your book, and I'm paraphrasing here, you said that relaxation in the, to the daytime is what sleep is to the nighttime. So maybe you can just touch on relaxation and like how, what strategies you, you may encourage people to do to get more relaxation throughout the day. Yeah. So we know that sleep is probably the biggest auto neck regulator, right? Of managing our stress systems and our recovery systems. And what we have found is that uh, a lot of people ignore 
what is also happening in the daytime and they just mm -hmm. live in the state of chronic stress. And we know that both physical stressors and psychological stressors can start to accumulate things like cortisol, right? Like a, a, a sympathetic nervous system activity, all sorts of crazy stuff can start to happen, right? You just keep getting this like baseline level of stress, all of which uh, will start to blunt or at least downregulate some of the recovery adaptive processes, particularly a lot of the cellular anabolic pathways, right? So we know that, okay, in order to get the most out of my training, I need to have all of my anabolism stuff really, really good. How do I do that? Well, I have to present an overload first. My nutrition has to be good, but I also have to be in a state conducive to recovery, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a low stress state, unfortunately, right? Like sympathetic and parasympathetic stuff tend to butt heads. They don't really work well in tandem. One tends to be up, one tends to be down. There is a balancing act there, but what we want to do is get my sympathetic way, way down and my parasympathetic way, way up, right? So how do we do that? Well, we have to actually bring ourselves into kind of a baseline state, both physically and psychologically. And we kind of already alluded to this before where some people do a good job at one or the other, but maybe not both. So with relaxation, what we're basically saying is as much as you can throughout the day, you want to be in a low state of both physical and psychological arousal, right? Where we shouldn't be like having our heart beating really, really crazy. We shouldn't be breathing really, really heavy. We shouldn't be sweating. We shouldn't be like activating all these different energy pathways. We want to be in a state of physical relaxation, meaning like as close to resting baseline levels as you can. Okay. And then as well as psychologically. Now, the psychological one is easier said than done. Why? Because most people have jobs, they have families, they have sports, they have training, they have, they have a ton of shit to do. So even people who do a good job on the physical, well, they'll go and train really hard, and then the rest of the day they sit on a desk or they just sit at home or even hang out at the beach and just relax. They also tend to be really, really high, highly active up top, and they'll be chronically stressed out all the time, whether they're on the email or they're dealing with family stuff. So we wanted to acknowledge that Fatigue can come from both physical and yeah. psychological and emotional stressors. Those things need to be managed as well. So throughout the day, what we want to find ourselves in is a state of relaxation, which is just that resting baseline state. Now, how do you do that? Well, you can do more like kind of structured activities where you say like, I am going to have relaxation time at 4 p.m. where I sit on the couch and do nothing, right? Or maybe I meditate or whatever. That's fine. You can do that. I think probably the best strategies are more indirect where you might do something that you enjoy uh, that allows you to get into that state, right? Kind of a catalyst or an avenue to relaxation. Mm -hmm. So for me, like I like to watch uh, anime. I like to read comic books. I like to, I'm actually reading a, the, the source material for like the, the 300 movie and graphic novel, which is really interesting. Um, I like to hang out with my cat, my fiance. Those are all things that help me like get down into a relaxed state. Are there other things that I could do? Like, yeah, I like to play PlayStation and video games. But if you've ever played online video games, you know that it's not very relaxing because you get fucking like 13-year-olds from Korea who just whoop your ass all day and you're like, come on. I've been playing this game all day and so how am I getting my ass kicked so bad? So that's like an example of something that might be physically relaxing where you're just sitting playing video games. It's not physically challenging, but you're getting a state of psychological arousal, which is not conducive to relaxation where you're getting pissed or anxious because you're like, ah, fuck. you know, that's me. That's, I got, I'll have my headset on and I'm like, oh, playing yeah, Destiny yeah. or something. Um, so we want to find things that kind of hit both of those things, right? We're like watching a movie or something, a low arousal activity or doing your favorite hobby. Some people like to play like the guitar or, you know, whatever. It doesn't have to be anything formal, but sometimes those indirect strategies are really good because they also enhance your quality of life without um, directly just like taking time out of the day to just do relaxation, you know, cause that's kind of, it's, it's, I, even for myself, I think like saying like, okay, 
at, at, you know, having a time where you say, I'm only going to do an hour of relaxation and then you use that time to do nothing is kind of a waste, right? Even though you might be getting the desired effect, it's also like interfering with your life. So you want something that is going to increase your quality of life, but also promote relaxation at the same time. You might be hanging out with your friends, your family, watching a movie, eating a meal, reading your favorite book, doing a hobby, you name it. Any of those things are great. And we should think about that. The problem is most of us have lives that we live and we have other obligations that we have to hit. So what we usually recommend is if you, once you are done with your major duties and responsibilities for the day, like your training's done, your work's done, your family stuff's done, right? Try to spend as much of the day in a relaxed state as you can, especially in the post-workout periods and especially, as you probably know, uh, before bedtime to kind of keep that low arousal wind down routine going. Another thing too, like if you, for some people, it can actually become a stressor if they start to like, like, like have it as a, have their, their, um, their fucking relaxation uh, regimented in their day. So like, right, four to 5 p.m. is where I do my relaxation. And then like, if something comes up or they have to do something or, you know, they, they could actually yes. be, it, could, it could be a stressor to them then like, you know, whereas if they do it through more of an indirect method, uh, it, it might be a better way going about it again, like hanging out with a friend or just like flaking out, watching something mindless on Netflix or something like that. Oh my God. Just, yeah, go ahead. My fiance, Dr. Davis. The same thing. Like she, sometimes she'll be like, "Oh, I didn't get like I didn't get my relaxation part of my day in, and it's, it it made her more stressed." Yeah, than I didn't, I didn't, she me- it, I didn't right? meditate but, or journal today. And it's like yes, uh, it's like so she'll she'll yeah. watch like Law and Order or something where she can just like tune out for yeah. an hour or two, and that really helps her with her like jujitsu stuff when she's training and uh, being really active. So for her, it's like watching Netflix, you know, binge watching a show or something like that is a good strategy. So there's a really good friend of mine called Pat Davidson and uh, you, you'd love him. He's like, a, he is like another just like intellectual meathead is, is the perfect way to describe Pat. He's a monster, but he's also, he used to teach in um, Springfield College. He's a, he's a PhD student, oh, like cool. Dr. Yeah, Dr. Yeah. Pat Davidson. But he speaks an awful lot about um, Steve Porges' polyvagal theory. And basically it's like that humans for the most part should be parasympathetic nearly all day long. Except, I agree. 100%. except for when we have to go into acute sympathetic modes like, again going back to like the, the old caveman days as they say where like you know acute exposures are where it was like life or death that we had to hunt or whether we had to track our prey down or else we had to get away because we were the prey but there were just these acute exposures very similar to what like Sapolsky talks about in why zebras don't get ulcers it's, you know kind of similar concepts but that the rest of the day should be more in a parasympathetic uh, state and because again we're bombarded by so many stressors that we're not in this parasympathetic state enough. And then going back then to adapting from training, the fact that we're, we have too much time in the sympathetic state, we're not adapting from our training. So it brings me to another point is uh, the timing then of our relaxation too. I know you touched this on Steve Hall's podcast and that like you were saying, you know, probably the two most important times for relaxation are after training and just before you go to bed. And um, just on the, say, cellular mechanisms, because I'm a nerd and there'll be nerds watching this, if we're too overly sympathetic, we're probably going to get like too much upregulation of AMPK and then probably downregulate like things like mTOR. Would that be correct? Whereas if we're more parasympathetic. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And those, uh, so, you know, obviously there's a time scale to those things. So you have kind of like primary, secondary messengers from the training stimulus. But mm. what we have found is that a lot of the wheels kind of start turning in terms of like transcription and translation of setting those things in motion right around like two to three hours after training. So that's a really good timeline where you want the conditions to be good. Now, protein synthesis, on the other hand, 
is going to be occurring for the next several days, right? Yeah, like 24, yeah. 48, even up to 36 uh, plus hours. So that's not really the issue what we're saying, but some of the wheels, the initial kind of secondary messengers and stuff that start the transcription translation process kind of start within about two to three hours. And if you've never checked out the, um, there's a really good book with a couple of really good diagrams of this is a uh, uh, sport nutrition by you can droop. Uh, uh, Oscar you can drip it's a mouthful of a name but he has a couple of really awesome diagrams in that book that outline exactly this mm. so uh, basically what we would say is you know it, probably in the first couple hours post training is probably one of the most important times a because you just ramped up super high right you need to get it back down as quickly as relatively as you can but that's also kind of when the cogs wheels start turning in the body and saying okay i have these primary and secondary messengers i had tension i had metabolite accumulation now i'm starting to see things like akt mTOR starting to see things like ampk ramping up i might be seeing uh, you know hormonal changes and responses those are probably some of the best times now unfortunately a lot of people train in the morning right and they go train before work then they go to work Right. So that option is not necessarily available. But yeah, in an ideal world, you would go train probably first thing in the morning, train really hard, have your meal, and then just be in a state of relaxation, parasympathetic the rest of the day. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more. It's just one of those like easier said than done type situations, unless you're a professional athlete where you're getting paid to do it. You know what I mean? Or else you're you're unreal at controlling your perceptions of every single stimulus in your life so that you can just stay parasympathetic, you know? You're just like in a bank and it's getting robbed and you're just like the most calm man ever. It's okay, no, this is all right. Yeah, it's it's unrealistic to think that you can totally do that. Unless, like I said, like if, you, if, you, if you're an NFL player and you're making, you know, $12 million a year, yeah, then you can do that. Why? Because you just got to show up at training. You got to show up at practice and that's your life. You don't got to make money. You don't got to hustle. You don't have to do, you could probably pay other people to take care of your family and all that other stuff, right? So yeah. your, your responsibilities are, ne are nothing. But for the rest of us, like, yeah, it's unrealistic. Like it would be great if I could just train in the morning and then not have to worry about making money the rest of the day. But that's not the reality, right? I have to have a job. I have to support myself. I, I have to com contribute in my relationship and, you know, all these all these other things. So it's unrealistic for most people. And that's the, the downside. So that's when having those direct and indirect strategies become increasingly useful because you can't just sit around and do nothing all day. Big time, big time. So I'll tell you what I do. We're going to move into nutrition and I'm going to ask you the, the question there of, you know, uh, carbs. So if we maybe just pull up the passive recovery, because the pyramids are one page after the other. So page 42, just maybe show up the sure. passive recovery hierarchy and then switch straight into nutrition. And then I'll ask you the two nutrition questions. Yeah, this is definitely my favorite one, I think, to talk about because did, it's one. That did, did you say that yourself and Mike had not like an argument, but you were kind of, was a disagreement between the passive and active ones in terms of where they should be in the hierarchy? Or was there so I thought I heard you say something. Oh yeah. No, that was within the active where we said like, I was kind of like, we were looking at all of them and I was like, you know, D loads, uh, nobody, I'm not, no one wants to debate, but you know, I, I think light days are like really awesome. And uh, he was like, no, I agree. And he made a, a wonderful point where he was just like, um, what we need to like illustrate is that, a program will not be successful if you do not have deloads, right? Whereas you can get away with not having light days. Light days are a wonderful supplement and they have a time and place, but you don't need them. They are not a priority. Yeah. And then we went back and looked at like the effect sizes and stuff of the, the light sessions and we both came to the same conclusion that Mike did. And I was like, you know what? You're right. As much as my heart and my bias really likes this particular method, 
can't deny that its effect size is just not up there. Mm. It has a very high applicability. Anyone can do it. Anyone can benefit from it. It's just not that powerful compared to cool. some of the other ones. And so that was the disagreement. All right, it so wasn't really a disagreement. It was more of just like an ongoing yeah, discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, like, the, but listen, that's how we learn through conversing and then like the best way I think to learn is to teach is to teach it. You know, that's, that's the best oh, yeah. way to consolidate your knowledge because what I found in teaching was like, I would teach and then the students would ask me questions. And I was like, you know what? I actually don't have an answer for that yet, but I'll go check it out. And it made me learn more and I connect more dots. And again, it made me consolidate my knowledge even better. So couldn't agree more. Absolutely. That's, so that's our passive hierarchy there. So sleep relaxation, stress management and planned rest. If we go down into nutrition um, as the next one, I think the active rest zone might be the next one, but we'll go down to nutrition anyway. We're going to, we'll skip that. We'll go back to that yeah here we go so i mean anyone who's seen the renaissance periodization um book would be very familiar with this pyramid but the one big difference from the rp uh diet book and i know 2.0 is coming out soon mike filled me in on like how much more information it's going to be so i'm really looking forward to that but the one big difference is when it went to the macronutrients in terms of hierarchy of order in the rp diet book Protein is the most important, then carbs and fats. Whereas in this recovery book, you guys put more of an emphasis on carbohydrates being, being more of a yeah. primary emphasis. So maybe just switch on to that, James. Yeah, so the interesting thing here is it's not trying to take away from protein. We're not trying to say like, okay, protein's not important. Yeah. But in the uh, acute sense, and even in the more moderate scales, the thing is you can pump somebody full of carbohydrates and you can get them back on track very, very quickly. Why is that? Well, carbs are the primary energy substrate from, for virtually all sporting and exercise purposes outside of just like, you know, walking. Um, and it actually sets the cellular conditions needed for anabolism. So one of the things is a really interesting example. Let's say you have a, a volleyball team like women's volleyball and they have a tournament uh, for a weekend where they may be playing Friday and Saturday and they might play like three or four, uh, you know, not matches, but three or four series each day. So they're going to be, you know, playing for a, a whole lot. Friday night after their first series, right? What's going to be the biggest limiting factor to them performing tomorrow? Is it the protein that they need to eat? Is it the structural damage done to the tissues? Probably not. It's probably not that much. And the protein that you eat is going to take several days to actually fix some of those uh, micro trauma and tears in the connective tissue and the muscle tissue. It's not going to happen overnight, right? It's going to take several days. What can you do? Well, you can pump them full of carbohydrates because they just spent as much of their glycogen as they could, possibly more from eating throughout the day to play these several volleyball series, right? So if you pump them full of carbohydrates, even if you just pump them full of sugar and soda, they're going to probably perform pretty well, or at least back to relatively close to their normal levels the next mm -hmm. day. Why? Because the limiting factor there is not how much damage they sustain. It's how much energy they have actually expelled. You need to put that energy back in into their endogenous sources so that they can go back and do it again. Another thing that uh, we already kind of alluded to, carbohydrate plays a huge role in actually setting very good anabolic and parasympathetic conditions, right? You give someone carbohydrates, you'll actually see their insulin go up. And so their ability to actually take in amino acids and carbohydrate back into the cell goes up. We'll actually start to see our stress. So it has a, an independent anabolic effect, right? Where it independently increases anabolism, but at the same time, uh, independently decreases catabolism. So now we'll actually start uh. to see some of our catabolic regulators like our uh, cortisol, our epinephrine, norepinephrine, will start to go down just in the presence of carbohydrate, mm. which is really cool. Mm. So we'll start to see that, and then we'll start to see things like heart rate, right? And then we'll start to see that relaxation effect start to take occur, start, excuse me, start to occur, which is exactly what we want. So one of the things that we have found is that, yes, protein is very important for the muscle tissue itself and for a variety of body functions, 
but carbohydrates are really one of the big butt kickers in terms of actually setting anabolic conditions for the cell to promote recovery as well as being a limiting factor to subsequent exercise performance. So like if you want to perform well either later in the day or the next day, it doesn't really matter how much protein you eat. If you don't replenish the carbohydrate that you have lost, you will not be performing well, period. And that's the end. I mean, it's really as simple as that. And this is something, man, I'm, I'm, I'm tangenting again. I apologize. Oh, you're great. But you're great. This is something like I said, exercise science and nutrition for sport has, are relatively babies in the field, right? Maybe 50, 60 years. But this is something they have beaten to death for the last 50 or 60 years. If you constrict carbohydrate, right, whether you have somebody run you know, 12Ks or you have them play soccer and you look at muscle biopsies, if you take carbohydrate away and don't put it back, performance always goes down. Now, there are some situations where people can become what I don't like this term, but they'll say fat adapted. I don't, I don't like that. But um, there are some instances where people can maintain or not go down quite as much in performance under low carbohydrate conditions. But for 95% of the time, if you look at all the literature, and this has been going on for decades, when you constrict carbohydrate, performance goes down outside of a very slim set of conditions. So it's one of these things that people still advocate for these like low carb diets for athletes. And if you want to live a low carb lifestyle for other reasons, just for vanity or for pride, or mm. maybe you have celiac disease and it's hard to you know, get a lot of carbohydrates because you have digestive issues, whatever, that's fine. But what we don't want to say, and I think is just totally wrong, frankly, is low carbohydrate lifestyle for athletes. You're going to have bad performance. You're going to have bad recovery. It's just a lose-lose. You know, it, I, I touched on this on my episode with Danny Lennon from Sigma Nutrition, and uh, it's something I used to speak about an awful lot when I used to teach as well. And again, it, it was all part of my, uh, my journey and, and growth. Uh, and um, my learning too, as I, as I went along as a coach and a practitioner and as a, as a teacher, like, you know, we probably all sort of went into these sort of rabbit holes and, you know, looked into like low carb dieting and, and stuff like that. Yeah. But, I've done uh, it too. I'm guilty of it too. I've yeah, done it. But, but like an easy way or well, not an easy way, but a way I like to get this point across is um, explain it like this in that as far as, but my current thought process would be that you're only ever eating for four things really. And the four things are hypertrophy, fat loss. So you could put that down as one thing, body composition, uh, but hypertrophy, fat loss, sports performance, or just health and wellness. And what I say to people is don't confuse the strategies from one of those areas and apply it to one of those other areas. So for instance, yes. if you're eating for just sports performance, there will be certain strategies that will optimize your performance acutely that if you apply to long-term health would not be a good strategy. So like, 100%. you know, like, like taking in like glucose tablets or like, uh, like sweets that digest really quickly. It's like, they're perfect for quick glucose in the body. If, if that's what's needed for a strategic instance in sports performance, but if you turn around and said, is this going to be healthy if I eat this every day in loads of amounts? Like obviously not. And then it's the yeah. same too. Then like, uh, like this will happen an awful lot with, um, some of the CrossFit athletes there for a period of time where they were like applying ketogenic diets is like, what are you doing? Like so much of your sport needs like carbohydrate. I think that's one of the, the, one of the primary reasons why we've had a lot of success at RP is because we get a lot of CrossFit people. And the first thing we do is pump them full of carbohydrates and they go, hot damn, I didn't know I could perform this well. And we're like, well, yeah, because you've been doing low carb the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. So James, just touch on, oh, sorry. If you want to add there, go ahead. Real quick. Sorry. I had a a rugby girl. I was coaching at Temple and I remember one day we were doing something. I don't know. I honestly don't remember what we were doing rugby practice. And I just remember she looked up at me at one point and she goes, 
is this healthy? Is this good for you? And I was like, no, rugby's not good for you. Rugby is probably shaving a couple of like years off your life, right? None of this is good for you outside of just general exercise. It's just not the right question. The question is like, am I getting the desired effect? And I think it was kind of alluding to what you were saying. Uh, Like it's anyone who's familiar with, again, James, Australia fan of Ropex. He, this is another thing. I know we spoke about maximum physical potential before we hopped online, but another area that James talks about so much and it's one that I talk about as well, even before I met James and aware of his work, because I used to say this as well to people. Fitness and health are not the same thing whatsoever. Or if you want to say sport and health, well, I used to say fitness and health. I think James more so says sport and health. But for me, I say fitness and health are not the same thing. Fitness is the ability to do a specific task. So a heavyweight power, I used to always say this to my students. I used to say, who's fitter, a marathon runner or a heavyweight powerlifter? And they all would say, oh, the marathon runner. And I'd like, oh, hold on. Who's fitter to lift the most amount of weight in a squat bench and deadlift? And they go, oh, it's like, yeah. yes, the heavyweight powerlifter. Now, is the heavyweight powerlifter healthy from a daily activity, day-to-day standpoint, like walking up the stairs? No, he's not. So he's just like, yeah, exactly. he's like, so J- James talks about the spectrum of like death and vitality. So James like, death is here, vitality is here. He's like, elite, elite performance in sport lives down towards death. It doesn't live <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't live towards vitality at all. He's like, and he's like, right. well, so they, they overlap slightly, right? Where it's like, if you don't do any exercise or any physical activity at all, yeah. right? You, then you, need, you need a competent, like a certain level of health, but like it, it doesn't, like people think that people look at those eyes, God, they're healthy. He's like, no, no, they're not. Listen, because I also, I was like, rugby is not healthy. Like mini car crashes, not healthy. That is shady. <laughs> that is yeah, shady. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's just one of those funny things. Like, so people will say, like, you'll you'll have a team, and then you'll be like, okay, I need you to eat all these carbs, right? Like, and they'll be like, I don't want to eat all that. And like, just have some Sprite, or have some Swedish fish, or have some candy, or something. You're like, is that healthy? Like, no, it's not healthy. Eat it. I need you to perform well tomorrow. I don't care if it's, you know, it's not a health thing. And but not to mention the fact that in the, even in the grand scheme of things, somebody who is like having an athletic lifestyle, body composition, all those things is that really going to negatively impact their health in any meaningful way because you ate, you know, 400 grams of sugar today? No, why? Cause yeah. most of that is confounded by your lifestyle anyway. Yeah. So it's like, but yeah, it's, it's a different discussion and your point is very well taken. And, and the other thing about it too, is that if sports perform, like the, like the other thing that people, people need to understand is that there's no right or wrong answer to where you live on that spectrum, you know? So like if somebody says, listen, I don't give a shit if I shave 10 years off my life, if I'm the best that ever lived at this sport. And like, they're like, that's my priority. And they've made their piece. I was like, well, then that's fine. Whereas have you, like, seen, have you seen so, Eddie Hall's documentary? Yeah, yeah. He like, literally it, says something to that, to that extent. Just like, that, I'm going to win. That's, that, that, that's another example I used to use to the students. Was, it was, I was like, who's watched the Eddie Hall documentary? And like I have. I said, so like Eddie's extru- like probably one of the fittest human beings to lift heavy shit off the ground. But he, like the trade-off he has to make in other parts of his life for that, like his health and his wellness. So like, and he's like yeah. living on towards that end. Like Eddie's ready to croak it. Like, so uh, yeah. yeah, it's just, it's just something else. He ended um, up winning and then didn't quit like he said he would. The point you made of excess muscle damage and that's negative effects on uh, glucose upregulation is very good. So maybe just touching that and why some athletes may need to overshoot a little bit on their carb intake if they're really like getting into like areas of high muscle damage. Yeah, well, it's actually like uh, there's there's some complex issues there, but there's a really simple issue which we can just it's it's it's. Uh, I'm trying to think of how I want to phrase this, but there's a really simple issue of when you actually start damaging a lot of the tissues, right? Like muscle, uh, it starts to literally rip apart, right? You have cells that will start oozing out, leaking out their contents. And this is mm-hmm. why we can use things like CK, blood uh, uh, creatine kinase, yeah. 
yeah. as an indicator of muscle damage. Muscle damage. Why is that? Because it like rips open, the cell rips open and it leaks out into the bloodstream. And that's how we can tell, right? Well, when we start to see that same effect, you can actually start to see like the contents of the cells ripping open and leaking into the blood, which is what we see with CK a lot. But then also your ability to actually put stuff back in is inhibited because of the structural damage. So glycogen lives right in the muscle itself. It's also in the liver, but for our purposes, like it's stored right there in the muscle. If like the cell is damaged or ruptured in any significant way, that can be difficult to either uh, reacquire those stuff that's already in there. It might ooze out, it might do anything. And it certainly might not be conducive to actually shuttling that back in to that cell and stored for later use simply because the cell is damaged. And the cell might even go through uh, apoptosis. It might actually be so damaged that it destroys itself and is rebuilt. Any number of things can happen. So it's one of those like, um, I don't fully understand the mechanism, so I don't want to speak to it outside of my ability. Um, but on a very simple level, uh, yeah, it actually, it, the, the actual physical damaging of the cell prevents stuff from being put in. Imagine trying to take your groceries home in a ripped grocery bag. Yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, okay, well. Your, uh, your, your, ana- <laughs> your analogies are a lot simpler than Mike's. Mike likes to go down these mad, like, uh, analogies. Like about- oh, I know. So you got to reel, you got to, like, reel him back in, too. You got to get the fishing pole. I'm like, all right, yeah. come back, come back, come back. <laughs> and, and the thing is, the thing is, it's kind of like, you, you got, you understood his point, like, two analogies ago. It's like, I get it. I get it. You know, you know it's a, oh, no, 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 no. Hold on. I'm going to tell you more about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so there's uh, a car and a tornado and you're like, oh, okay, I got it. I got it. I got it. It's like that, uh, it's like that Louis CK joke he has about a couple who, uh, like, they're on their first date and he's like, you ever see the guy and he's trying so hard and, like, he didn't realize that, like, 50 jokes ago, the girl had already made up her mind, yeah, I'm going to have sex with him tonight, but he just didn't know so he just kept going. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like, exactly. you know, he's already exactly. made it he's already like he's in you know but he just keeps you going. already sold me just just yeah. get to the point <laughs> yeah um you had me at the at the dick jokes <laughs> so uh just what we'll do to wrap up is i'd say go to the hierarchy there for the um active recovery and then we'll go through that and then if we can maybe finish up on the, the sort of funny thing you found out about all of these like uh, supplemental um, mm. modalities was that they all just induce relaxation. So we'll, we'll, what we'll do is we'll, we'll finish <laughs> we'll finish here on on the um, on the active recovery pyramid. Touch a little bit into the the relaxation from the confounding factor of relaxation from the uh, supplemental activities. And then sure. anything else that we've got left to cover, I'll get you back on because I want to get you back on to cover the last chapter in the Volume Landmarks book, so how much I should train. Yeah, because sure. your sport background and my sport background, and then our, our like our like mutual massive interest in like just periodization. Like I, I program periodization is like one of my things. Like same with James Drill. When he talks about programs, just like we're on like you know, it's just like, oh I love this. It's really so fun to talk about. Yeah. I'll uh, let you take it away there, my man. So active recovery and then we'll get into those confounding factors with the therapy with the supplemental uh, strategies and then we'll we'll call it a day. So what have we got? About maybe sure. ten minutes? Yeah, that sounds great. All right, let's okay. go. Well, so yeah, the active recovery one you guys can see here. Um, again, the reason why active recovery is so important is because fatigue drops off faster in most cases than mm-hmm. fitness decays, right? So the problem that a lot of people run into is they don't want to stop. They think that if they just stop training or they take a couple easy going days that they're going to lose all their gains. And that is mostly ridiculous. And what we have found is that 
and this is what we alluded to, what you were just mentioning in the uh, Volume Landmarks book, where you can actually just do something else entirely, right? Like you can do strength training or even power and speed training, and that will hold on to your muscle mass at least for a little while. Maybe not forever, but for a little while. So you do not necessarily have to do all these crazy things to retain fitness. And this is why active recovery works. So what we have here, and again, we already kind of alluded to this, is we have our hierarchy based on which ones have the biggest effect size, which ones are the most applicable, and what's the combination kind of between those two things. And so by far, deloads, we said we're the best in terms of active recovery, only that everyone can benefit from deloads, right? So it doesn't matter if you're a sport athlete, a health and fitness person, recreational person, doesn't matter, right? Everyone can benefit from taking a deloads, and their effect is very powerful in both the short term and even in the more moderate term and mm. potentially in the long term as well, right? So we can start to see like really big drops offs in acute and accumulated fatigue just from doing the deloads, very, very good. And the deload is nice because you can still go in and still reinforce your skills, right? You don't have to stop training. You just do less training, right? You're just doing less than you normally do, closer to your maintenance volumes of training, but you still get to reinforce all your training techniques, your sport techniques, and any tactical stuff that you might may or may not be doing depending on your sport. So deloads, hands down, can't go wrong, right? Mesocycle and annual volume manipulations is a big mouthful of a term. You can just kind of put parentheses periodization in there. And essentially what we're saying here is you should have a program where you're not doing the same thing all the time, right? And this is more of a moderate to long-term strategy where, and this is more of an issue for, I think, hypertrophy and endurance training is really the kind of the two ones that come to mind. Those are the two, the highest volume types of training that you can do. And you yeah. know, maybe you're not an endurance athlete. Maybe you do hypertrophy training. Great. doesn't matter. Same idea. Um, or you can, or your, your, your Alex Vieira who does fucking you do both. injury. Yeah, you do everything. He's amazing. He's a stud. He um, is. So what we have found is that um, you can't do this crazy high volume training all the time for a variety of reasons. One, you start to get a plateauing effect, right? Where you just stop getting a lot out of your training altogether. You're not getting stronger. You're not getting more muscular. You're not getting more fatigue resistant. You start to get flat. Uh, your desired training will start to go down, da, 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 right? What's the other problem is that you start to overreach, right? Just from doing the chronically high volumes all the time. So we have estimated that, you know, for high volume training, you can get like two to three really good mesocycles. And then it's probably a good idea from both a performance enhancement and fatigue management standpoint to have some lower volume training periods. Hmm. Now, how you go about that is up to you. And there's a couple different strategies that you can use. We recommend doing things like um, the mini cuts, taking a strength phase, doing a resensitization phase, any of those things are great, right? Yeah, yeah. Here's the simple thing, right? If you're doing traditional, like, like traditional sports, like your field sports, your team sports, stuff like that. If you're doing a normal periodized program, one of the things that you do throughout that is going from different fitness characteristics, biomotor abilities. You did your hypertrophy or your, your, your general kind of work capacity stuff. Then you move into your basic strength and you move into your maximal strength, you move into your power. Mm -hmm. Well, what have you done throughout that phase? We've well, actually just reduced the volume each time. So now you're actually getting some variation, some periodization, right? From the volume perspective where you're having periodic periods of lower volume training that helps you continue to either increase fitness or maintain fitness while dropping off huge amounts of chronic fatigue in the long term, right? Because now you're not carrying around this huge workload that you have been for several months. It also resensitizes you to that crazy hard training later on. So it's a double whammy. So sport training, you kind of already do that. Well, at least you should be unless you're coach derp and then their volume just stays like this all year, right? Um, you're, giving, so that's you're, kind of, you're, you're giving coach derp an awful time. I fucking hate those guys, man. I tell you that. <laughs> They're terrible. And we've all experienced those. They're just like hard headed, you know, old school guys. Um, 
anyways. But so in sport training, right, that's like, you kind of already do that unintentionally, right? Even if you don't realize that's what you're doing. So that's great for more fit. You know, like I don't want to get these confused, but for people who are just training for like health or body composition, right? Um, it's more of an issue where you actually have to take steps periodically because all you do is this high volume training all the time, which accumulates a ton of chronic fatigue. So at that point, it's a good idea to take what we call either like a resensitization phase where you just train down at maintenance volumes. You can take a, a traditional kind of strength phase, which doesn't have quite the same powerful effect, but it allows you to train something else like strength. Or you can even um, do some other things like active rest phases or mini cuts or stuff like that. But it's good. The, the take home bullet point here is you can't do the same thing all the time. Mm. And your volumes should be varied throughout the year not only to enhance performance, but to drop off accumulated fatigue that tends to linger from doing hard, high volume training all the time, right? So after that, we have active rest and light sessions. Again, this is a situation where we said, I can't really differentiate these two in terms of how powerful they are. So we put them in the same general weight. Active rest is really good. The problem with active rest is, is that it's very powerful, but not very applicable. Why is that? Well, not everyone needs to take active rest. If you're somebody who's just trying to improve their body composition or just trying to be healthy, you might, might never do this outside of going on like vacation with your family, right? That might be the only time where you do active rest, but you might not need to do it as a fatigue management strategy. Whereas um, people who are actively competing in sports like CrossFit, you know, powerlifting, weightlifting, team sports, your training is grueling, right? Your nutrition, the training, all that stuff is grueling. And you might find yourself at a point in the training cycle or at the end of a competition cycle where you're just like, I don't give a fuck about any of this anymore. If I have to do another wall ball or double under, or if I have to pick up a soccer ball, rugby ball, I'm going to lose my mind, right? And we, it happens, right? It's yeah. burnout. It's, it's not unusual. That is the ideal time to take active rest, which essentially is just non-structured training, very close to the maintenance volume. Uh, and this is where you, you give, you kind of reinstill a, a sense of autonomy to your athlete where you say, mm -hmm. you know what, do your own thing. I've been programming for you for the last six to eight months. Just do your thing. Come back and see me in like two or three weeks. Have fun. I don't care. All I ask is that you don't get super fat, you don't lose muscle mass, and you don't totally decondition, right? Try to hit maintenance volumes of training just so you don't get worse and then come back and see me in a couple of weeks and then we can talk about training again. It's so awesome. funny. It's so funny. Go. Sorry, it's, it's just real quick. It's so funny you say that because uh, Stu McMillan had a sprinter one time and he was kind of at that stage. And Stu actually said to me, he's here, listen, just take 10 days off and come back to me but he forgot to mention that don't get overly fat thing. And he says, he came back to me in 10 days. He put on stone and she was like, what did you do, man? <laughs> That's amazing. So it was the right idea, right? Right. Exactly the same thing that we're talking about. Just you know, maybe misapplication, right? Where it's like, yeah, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. well I did that, but then I ate too much. Now I'm super fat. Now my sprinting is all stupid because my gut is swaying side to side. Right. So uh, yeah, same idea though. Right. Just take a couple, like two weeks for most people, two weeks seems to be pretty good for more advanced or for people who are deeper in the hole, maybe three to four weeks might be necessary. But again, like if you're just training to be healthy, you might not even do this at all. So that's why we put it there. It's very powerful, maybe less applicable on the counter point to that is light sessions where we say not very powerful, but very applicable. Everyone can benefit from light sessions. You can do it in sport training. You can do it in weight training. You can do it for health and fitness. You can do it for whatever. It doesn't matter. You can take light sessions. They're really good. The problem is that they're just not that powerful. They really only address acute fatigue and it's really only kind of like on a day-to-day -day level. So it's a good one for auto-regulation and it's a good one for pre-planned strategies where you say like, okay, I know either this day is going to be particularly hard, maybe because I had deadlifts the day before, yeah. or you have an athlete who just shows up to your sport practice and they just look like shit. And you're like, dude, what's 
wrong with you? And they're like, I'm just having a really bad week. And you say, you know what? We're going to take a light session and you're going to come back to the next practice and you're going to be much better off. I think so psych- I, psychologically, I think is where they, where they have a big impact too. You know, we're kind of going, it's oh, a, yeah. you know, it's a light day today. You can kind of nearly look forward to it and then you're refreshed. Yes. You know yes. what I mean? Everyone looks forward to the light. If they know like Tuesdays are light days, they're always like, oh yeah, sweet. Today's going to be easy going. Like, yeah, always, always. And then tapering. So I know on Steve Hall's when you were like physique at least, but I don't mean this, but again, from someone like myself, myself who'd be involved with, with team sports, like tapering and even anyone involved, obviously in track and field where a lot of this, you know, initial periodization literature comes from like tapering obviously is a huge thing. And the great thing, or the, not the great thing, the interesting thing about tapering is how individual it is. Again, the bigger, faster, yeah. stronger people, longer taper periods versus, you know, your smaller, weaker, slower twitch people. And then there's males versus females. So much. That's why I find fatigue so fascinating. Yeah. Like, so if you have somebody who's relatively new or very relatively untrained, like you can just take like a couple light days and it's going to be no different than yeah. if you did a full taper. Right. So then it's like, well, why would you take two weeks if you only needed like two days? Whereas like intermediates, you're looking more at like two to three weeks, more advanced people, maybe three weeks. And then like for high, you know, elite people, it might be like four weeks of tapering to get ready for a competition, especially if you're like Eddie Hall size. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting thing one problem that we run into i don't know if you guys have this quite as much by you but it's certainly in the u.s uh people taper too frequently for competitions that don't matter do you see that a lot yeah yeah. instead of just like yeah yeah you mentioned it in the book too so for instance you were talking about like where if you're a sports team and you know you're going to be playing like a team that are like well inferior to you you actually won't taper going into that game you'll just play right through it yeah yeah Yeah. or take a couple light days for that week you know just to bring fatigue down a little bit reduce your risk potential yeah it's it's people will do it for like the crossfit meets and stuff where they'll have like a gym meet right which like who cares uh and they'll do like a full taper for the gym meet or like for like the new jersey you know bench press bench only powerlifting competition and you're like dude why do you want to take that much time away from training for a competition that doesn't matter? I mean, like it's a cost benefit analysis, right? Like tapering has a huge benefit because you can actually express new fitness that you were not able to express before, which is cool. But it's also like several weeks of time away from doing hard overload training. You know what I mean? So it's like, do you want to take that much time off? I'd say mm, probably not if you so, don't need to. James, tell you what, we'll, we'll call it here, right? And I'll get you back on and I want you to cover chapter eight in this book. So uh, Roadmap to Recovery will give me another chance to reach out again and come up with some good uh, points. Then also I want to go through the final chapter in the How Much I Should Train book. So the, the volume of sure. Landmarks book and we can rant on that all day. And also there's other like little just questions I want to ask you. So like, I always ask questions about, um, you know, like your biggest lessons learned, your top life advice, resources, books, and like just one or two other like questions. Like, so I definitely want to get you back on for that. So what I'll do is I'll wrap this up and then when we're offline here, I'll, uh, I'll discuss you a bit when we will, we'll get it going again. But just so that, just so you have this on video and audio, you were telling me about the little rhyme. You're like, Oh, send that rhyme to me. So I'll just say here. So, uh, the, the one about methods and principles. So it's yeah, yeah. that methods are many, principles are few, methods may change, but principles rarely do. Ah, brilliant. My, myself and James were talking about like the, the reason why they came out with the scientific principles of strength training, the volume landmarks book, so how much I should train, and then the recovery from training book was because they wanted to get principles across people where you know, most people are always you know, getting confused or arguing about methods. Like when, when you understand principles, it, that really clears up a lot of confusion. So like first principles like are very important things to understand in like every domain. Absolutely. And that's true for not just this, but like all avenues of life, right? Like being exactly. able to think 
critically requires that foundational principle level knowledge. And then you can do like pros and cons, cost benefits after that of methods. Just real quick, I go in there. I remember hearing Greg Knuckles and Mike, um, I think Greg was on, was it Danny's podcast? I'm not sure if Mike was on Danny's too, but it was on podcast anyway, where somebody asked, it was separate, like they weren't on podcast together. Uh, but someone had asked Greg, like, oh, what's your top book recommendation? Someone asked Mike, top book. and the two guys just come and said, just read a textbook. I mean, if, if people, yeah. if people, well, no, it's read, too boring. It takes too yeah, much time. That's what he said though. But they were like, if you just invested, just read, just read a textbook, just like invest, you know, and it's just like your bullshit detector goes, whoa. Yeah. yeah that's the thing like people always want the quick answer like how do i become the greatest bodybuilder ever and you're like uh i don't know do you have you read anything and they're just like no i just have want you, that like have I you got this. have you got 10 years a lot of and a lot of money for food and drugs yeah exactly and it's like well, I'm sorry, sorry. There, there is natural bodybuilders i take that back but food food and 10 years yeah i mean it's just one of those like there's not a quick fix answer for virtually any of these questions and that's the same idea of you know life in general like you can't just quick fix your way through life it requires things require investments it requires adversity and you have to overcome many challenges the same thing goes here you have to read a lot you have to invest time and effort and experiment and trial and error it's no way around it absolutely listen i'm gonna look so far to get back on just quickly before we go just stand up a little bit and show off the irish crest there because we couldn't see it oh yeah, yeah. there we go so Dude, just, that was so stoked when just i was over it. there it was yeah. it was uh it was a blast our our host was an animal he was right. a beast of a man he parties like a rock star that's that's what, well, that's what you that's what we're known for here now but would you believe i'm an irish man that doesn't drink so they call me the unicorn uh oh what was the uh sorry before this is totally stupid what is the word you guys use for like hillbilly or redneck over there oh uh travelers travelers tra tra there's another one i couldn't Tinkers. remember Tinkers? no it was knackers oh knackers is another one yeah knackers is yeah, another there one. We go. okay that was like that was our lingo that we picked up on for that trip was knackers yeah. there we go. yeah okay absolutely. all right well, good. made me think nice. of that so great, i was like great. oh sweet great uh, anyways, great thanks for having me on this was a blast no problem at all. So for all the viewers and listeners, fantastic episode with Dr. James Hoffman. Definitely going to have him back on for a part two where we'll cover the remaining concepts in this book, um, Recovery from Training. And also, as I said, we're going to cover concepts covered in the last chapter of the Volume Landmarks book because that was, that's a really good chapter, one that resonated with me because, again, we're both heavily involved with sports teams. So uh, going to wrap it up here. I'll put everything from Renaissance Periodization in the show notes. So everything will be there in the show notes. If you want to get the books, the website, uh, look for the membership site on Renaissance. Only ten dollars a month, an absolute bargain. And you're getting, Steel. you're getting, you're getting uh, Dr. James Hoffman. You're getting Dr. Mike Gizertel. You're getting uh, Melissa too. Mel, Mel's on too, isn't she? Mm -hmm. uh, yep. Like these people are all PhDs. Like you're getting basically a third level education course there as well. And make sure also to check out opexfit.com. But for now, that was a long uh, outro. But now, <laughs> take care, guys. So the listeners and viewers, peace.